Hello, I'm Anthony Morrow, and this is the Get On The Money podcast, where I help you understand more about your money. I've worked in the finance industry for 20 years, and I got sick of watching those people who don't need any help get richer, while the people who need the most help continue to struggle. So, in every episode, I'm giving you a financial survival toolkit to help you navigate your way in a world where full-time contracts are getting rarer and rarer and more people than ever are navigating the gig economy. This time, you're going to hear about future-proofing your finances if you can't afford to get on the housing ladder. You'll hear from Will. Will is typical of a lot of young people right now in that he's grappling with what it takes to be able to buy a house nowadays. If you can borrow 10k from mum and dad to help you put a deposit down on a house, then great, good for you, and you should do that. But it's just not the it's just not the reality for, for everybody. Yeah. I think it's really important to hear from people like Will because his experience is so different to that of previous generations. Buying a house might have been good for his parents, but is it a good deal for young people who are faced with today's housing market? Before you hear from Will, I want to tell you about this story I've spotted in the news. You may have seen in the news recently the stories about banks freezing the accounts of thousands of their customers for mysterious reasons. This is a bad situation for all the customers involved, but for customers of the Pocket service, then it is even worse. That is because Pocket is a type of banking service created for people who haven't been able to open traditional bank accounts. These people, often referred horribly as the unbankable, have typically had money problems in the past or haven't been able to prove their home or their identity for whatever reason. They are also people for whom money tends to be tight and having their accounts frozen can have very serious impacts. These problems are thankfully being dealt with, but I want to spend a few minutes talking about Pocket and the many services like them. Over recent years, there's been a real explosion in the number of what are called e-money providers in the UK. Providing services which look and feel like a normal bank, but importantly, aren't banks. The Financial Conduct Authority, the police of the finance world, have become so concerned about some of the advertising and promotion of these services that they recently asked all of these providers to write to every one of their customers to confirm again that they are not a bank. The biggest difference between a traditional bank and one of these e-money providers is that with a bank, your money is protected by the financial services compensation scheme. Which means in the unlikely event of a bank getting into trouble, all of your money up to 85,000 is guaranteed. Now, as I say, a bank getting into trouble is unlikely, but it's not unheard of. If you cast your mind back to 2007, 2008, and the scenes at Northern Rock where people were queuing up to get their money out and that bank ended up failing, then it shows that even in the most extreme circumstances, knowing that your money is guaranteed is really important. E-money providers are not covered by the compensation scheme. And whilst there are some protections there, they're simply not the same as you would get with a traditional bank. Another important point, if you are one of the people looking at opening a bank account, is that since 2016, most traditional banks have been required by law to provide what are called basic bank accounts. This means that regardless of your background, you can open a bank account. 
In fact, HSBC have recently extended their basic bank account to include people with no fixed address. This is incredible progress, and you cannot overstate how important having your own bank account can be for someone's self-esteem. These basic bank accounts provide everything that a traditional current account provides, except for debt facilities like overdrafts. These accounts are also free. Why is this important? It's important because e-money providers like Pocket are anything but free. They often charge a monthly fee for simply having the account, along with charges every time you transfer money, withdraw money, or even pay money by direct debit. At Open Money, we did some research and found that people could typically be paying between 15 and 20 pounds per month just for running an account. Let's remember that these accounts are aimed at people for whom 15 to 20 pounds could be the difference between getting to work for a week or feeding the family. This is truly scandalous, especially when you consider that all these services are provided for free by a traditional bank and with your money guaranteed. I often talk about how the financial services industry doesn't do enough to help those who struggle financially. This is the very worst example of not just not helping, but actually profiteering. These services need to be called out for what they are, and the traditional banks need to do more to promote their excellent basic bank accounts so that they really do make a difference to people who will really appreciate it. So that's what I think about money in the news this week. Have you got a question for me? Get in touch at chat at getonthemoneypodcast.com. Get on the money. Straight talking, no jargon, helping you make sense of your money. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining me on Get On The Money. Thanks for having me, Anthony. I'm excited to talk to you. You're 25. You're essentially your own business. And it's been a common theme with most of our guests that we've had on, on this show in that, that the whole concept of getting a job has really changed, even to the extent that some people you know, will have more than one job. You know, They won't have a, a full-time job. They'll have several ones just doing different things. And that's the sort of approach that they're comfortable with. And it's this job for life, nine to five, just isn't there. Just in terms of your sort of relationship with money, are you the person who, when they have a good month, makes sure they remember when they've had a bad month and, and squirrel it away? I certainly try to. And I, yes, I do always make sure that I put something away. And I'm lucky that I've kind of, built up some savings there, which have earmarked for different things. Like kind of the, the next step in my personal development is to learn to drive and get a car. Um, and I think as we'll come on to some kind of house deposit is I'd like to be on the cards in the future as well. But yeah, I'm certainly trying to make sure that when I have a good month, it's there to offset when I've had a, a slow month in the past or in the future. Yeah. And I think that, I think that whole budgeting and getting in the discipline of saving is really vital. I mean, it, we, you know, what, what, whatever it is you're saving up for, whether or not it's something specific like you mm-hmm. are, or even if it's just there to build up that sort of protection buffer for you know unforeseen events that could happen yeah. uh, in the future, when you haven't got that regular salary to rely on, you know, it can it really it can really just help reduce the stress mm-hmm. of anything. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, it's like, okay, well, this month has been slow, but it's not the end of the world because if I need to, I can dip into this pot 
to make sure that it's, it's going to yeah. be fine. Going back on to one of the things you're talking about in terms of your future goals, buying a house or, or whatever, that's a, a really important theme at the moment, particularly for younger people. You know, we're reading about it and the challenges that your generation are facing in terms of getting on the, the housing ladder, which is the term that's been around now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember that this has been spoken about for a long time now. The idea that, you know, every generation is finding it harder and harder to get on a, a housing market that isn't growing fast enough to accommodate all the people who want to buy mm -hmm. a house. Yeah. It's really interesting just to talk through with you what your understanding of why buying that house is so important and what your current situation with regards to rent is and why that isn't something that you want to do longer term. So at the minute, so I live in Leeds and I live in a part of Leeds that is mostly uh, like students and young people and kind of new families and that thing. And it's great. I live in a house share with, you know, a handful of other people who will work. I like the area that I live in. I like the people that I live with. So it's great. So I'm having a good time. My rent is not, it's not extortionate because of the, the kind of the area that I live in and because I live with other people. So it's, it's not ridiculous, but long term, it's about having a space that is my own, that's there for the long run. You know, at the minute I sign my rent on six monthly contracts. So I'm always thinking kind of six months at a time. And yeah, I'd like to get to a point where I don't have to share with other people and there's not new people moving in and out all the time. And some people, when they talk about paying rent, they like, I've got, I've got friends who own houses who are like, oh, like I could never rent. You might as well just throw your money away. You might as well just set your money on fire. I don't think of it like that because I feel like I am paying for a service. But at the same time, I understand that I could pay a similar, not that much more mortgage repayment for a, like a house or whatever that is in fact my own and I can do what I want with it. I think that's the, the real crux of the problem at the moment is that the, the sort of narrative has been positioned for so long around the importance of not only owning your house, but also seeing your own property as an investment that it will, you know, will go up and go up in value and often go up handsomely in value, which is, which is great if you're on the housing level. Yeah. If you have a property, yeah. Yeah. The narrative doesn't help the fact that for too many people, that is becoming a harder and harder thing to achieve, mm -hmm. you know. And you get to the point where actually, if you look at where house prices are now, the amount of money that needs to be saved for a deposit mm -hmm. to simply buy the property. And yes, there are schemes that are always being released by the government to encourage more people. But all that does is drive prices up again mm -hmm. because there are only so many properties and more people want them. The amount of money that you're paying for a deposit uh, on a property, if you're one person, like I am, I'm a single person, the amount of time it will take me to amass that kind of cash is years. It'll take, it'll take ages. Whereas I've got friends who have recently bought their first house, a new-ish build. There's two of them. There are a couple. There's two of them. They both have pretty standard jobs with good jobs with good set incomes. They've been able to save up for a deposit. The bank kind of trusts their income 
so they're willing to lend them more. And, and that's worked out great for them. I, on the other hand, I don't make as much. My income's not set. And who knows what I'll be doing this time in five years. So it's, and, a, it's a challenge. And that's it. And I think, you know, there were, there were plenty of stories. You read them in the papers at weekends where, you know, people have basically lived on beans and rice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for five years, not gone out, yeah. not done anything to save for the deposit. And I just think that's the wrong way to look at this. The buying of the house and getting the mortgage, you know, the mortgage is, for almost everyone, the biggest, most expensive financial instrument they will ever take out in their life. You know, you effectively owe the bank for 25 years, Mm -hmm. which is a large part of your working life. Mm -hmm. And yes, the balance is, okay, well, you've got to pay the faceless landlord for them to provide services and you know the, there's lots of stories about people having terrible landlords who don't fix things and mm-hmm. you know and things like Absolutely. that and, you know that's one of the things to play around but what are you thinking around your options longer term i think so i'm if i'm 25 now and i want to own my own property by the time i'm 30 based on the research that i've done i know that i have to put away this much a year, this much a month or whatever, to be able to reach that goal. And I'm in a position where I can do that. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to me personally in that time. I don't know what's going to happen to the market in that time, but who knows. But I feel like I'm making steps towards that goal. If I'm putting a little bit of money aside every month, specifically for like future living, whatever that is. And and I know, you know, from before we started uh, talking here, you've mentioned that you, you know, your dad has offered to help by doing what, you know, a a big number of people do, which is move back home, live with their parents for a bit, which sounds terrible. Absolutely. As a way to save up more money quicker, Mm -hmm. it's an option for some people, isn't it? I'm really glad that you brought that up because he has said, oh, just come and and move back for two two years and then all the money that you're paying on rent, you can put towards that, which is a perfectly valid point. You know, it would help me reach that goal a lot sooner. And I understand that. But at the same time, that means moving back in with mum and dad. And the problem is, it's about living my adult life in my childhood house. And I don't think that's something that I want to do. And also, especially because I work from home and I run my business from home, that's just like a whole thing that I don't think I want to do. The other thing that I could do that would help me reach that goal faster is get a job that pays more money. If I had more income coming in, then I could put more of it aside for, you know, a deposit on a house, again, reach that goal faster. But that would mean reducing the amount of time that I'm working on my business or maybe even giving it up at all. And that's not something that I'm willing to do because I started this business, you know, like I said, from nothing quite a long time ago and I've worked very hard on it. There's a really good point in that the decision as to whether or not to buy or rent should really be viewed as part of your overall lifestyle mm-hmm. plans. And that includes what you want to do for a living, mm-hmm. you know, whether you want to get a job and the trade-off from getting a job against the, all the, the flexibility that being your own boss brings mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's very similar to, you know, buying or renting. Obviously, you know, with renting, yeah, you don't end up owning anything at some point, but you also have a great deal of flexibility in mm-hmm. case you want to go and do something. You know, That's the thing. You know, in case you if, want to go and live somewhere. 
Exactly. Like, I, I grew up in Leeds, and I like it here, but... Like I said, because I, I work in six-month contracts, I can go wherever I want. Hell, if one of my American clients said, hey, we'll come and live in California for six months, I'd be like, absolutely, get me over there. So renting absolutely allows me the flexibility to do that. And that is another thing that I am... Um, it's another reason why I'm happy about it. Yeah. And the whole throwing good money after bad almost certainly is only ever said by people who own a house. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a smaller and smaller percentage of people. Now, yeah, it's a sad place where we are but it is the place we are and i think changing the conversation is a more practical solution to simply saying we're going to build more houses here here's a load of schemes and that by the government to help people people afford something because owning that house is a is the be all and end all yeah i think if we can like you say if, if you can kind of change the conversation around renting so it's not kind of painted in this you're wasting your money kind of light and you know you mentioned some of the horror stories that some people have had with their landlords and agencies and that kind of thing i'm very lucky that my i rent through an agency and they're pretty good so maybe there's something there where people will feel more comfortable renting if they know that they're getting a better quality of service yeah Um, i think i think regulation of the rental market and really improving standards there mm-hmm. is something that could be achieved pretty quickly. And I th- if, if I sort of look at it from where we started the conversation about saying that people's approach to their jobs has changed. And from my point of view, so, you know, I'm 47 and, you know, and I've, I'm from the generation where owning a house and a, and, and a long-term job career, that was what happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole idea of this flexible working or multi multi job was like oh my god what, what how how do you how do you do that mm-hmm. but that's you know it's a new approach and a lot of it is driven by necessity or just a change in outlook not wanting to be a slave to the uh, to the man mm-hmm. if you will and um, and, and to do that and i think a similar outlook needs to be taken in terms of the property the fact that actually it can't be an you know we can't have an outlook where everyone is determined as success or failure as to whether or not they buy a house. Yeah. That's just not what it's about. And it, and it's just not viable for everybody and not at no. the same age. If you can borrow 10K from mum and dad to help you put a deposit down on a house, then great, good for you and you should do that. But it's just not the, it's just not the reality for, for everybody. Yeah. If the question was framed, do you want to owe the bank for 25 years, which means you need to you know, a third of your salary, mm-hmm. in some cases more, you know, is going on a mortgage repayment. What do you think about that? You know, and you just go, oh, right, okay. It'd be well. a hard sell, wouldn't it? I, renting is great. If somebody was hesitant, I'd encourage them to do it. Just do your research. Make sure you're working with, you know, a reputable landlord or a reputable agency. Don't be afraid to ask a bunch of questions. Try and be, if you're going to live with other people, meet the other people that you're going to live with, that kind of thing, and you'll have a great time. Yeah, and, and rental, the rental market is something that exists very, very well in lots of other countries. Yeah. I mean, a, a European market, you know, it's pretty much a rent, you know, it's a rental market, and mm, yeah. that's just, that's it. That, you know, that's just part of life, you know, in the same way that in, in the UK, 
owning the property is part of, part of life, and that's what we need to reshape. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Well, thanks, Will, for joining us. It's a subject I know a lot of people will be interested in. Wish you all the very best in the future with your business and also with your um, your housing, wherever that ends up as. I'll have you over for a housewarming party. I look forward to the invite. <laughs> I think it's really important to hear from young people like Will. How many times do you hear people using the phrase throwing good money after bad when it comes to renting? But as you can hear from Will, to his mind, he's paying for a service. So what's the problem with that? I don't think there is one single answer to the current housing problems that people, particularly younger people, are experiencing. We've always been told that owning your own home is an essential part of life. Government after government have all tried different ways to help people get onto the housing ladder. But what they have actually done is fuel house price increases to make it even more unaffordable for many people to start buying their own home. We're simply not going to be able to build enough houses for everyone. This will mean that house prices will continue to rise and the worst case scenario is that we will end up with crap houses being built that are being sold at high prices to people just desperate to buy something. I think what we need to do is look at how we view renting and rather than seeing it as a second class option, let's look to many parts of Europe where renting is the preferred option with people spending their money instead on possessions within that rented property and a lifestyle not dictated by having to save for a deposit and then spending 25 years paying off a loan, often in the hundreds of thousands of pounds. For this to happen, then protection for tenants and legislation around renting needs to be seriously tightened up. We need to move away from the wild west that exists at the moment around so many amateur landlords. We need to change the record on how owning a property is the be all and end all. It really isn't. So what can you do so you can think longer term around your finances when you can't get on the housing ladder? I have a few tips for you. The first one, and it may seem an obvious one, is think about what it is you want from your property. Is it location? Is it a garden? Or is it literally somewhere to keep your things and to sleep in between doing the things you really enjoy? Once you've decided what you want from the property, then you can start to see whether or not you're getting good value for money from your rent. If location really isn't that important, perhaps you can save some money by moving to a cheaper location. You can also negotiate better rental terms if you can commit to a longer lease. So if you can look to stay somewhere for 12 months or even 24 months, then this could see you saving money again. Whilst having a mortgage can be seen as a vital part of owning your own property, it's important to remember that it's a commitment that will be with you, usually, for over a quarter of a century. Lots of things can happen in that time through which you will always still owe your mortgage lender money. If you're not sure what or where you're going to be in the next two years, 
then you're probably not ready to buy a house anyway. Don't beat yourself up over it. Use the flexibility that renting offers you. And if you are scrimping and scraping for that deposit, think whether or not you can spend some time actually enjoying life before you get onto the treadmill of being a mortgage borrower. Next time on Get On The Money, can you still get a mortgage if you're a freelancer? You'll hear from Laura Beth, who's retraining so she can get on the housing ladder. Previously, I've been freelance, so it can be hit and miss when you get work and when you get paid and how much you get paid. So I ended up applying for a PGCA and I completed it last week. You'll find out what steps you can take if you want to buy a house, but you don't have a permanent employment contract. If you're getting good tips and advice from Get On The Money, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Get On The Money podcast is out every other Thursday. To continue the conversation, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Get On The Money. Thanks for listening and see you next time.